that if four Johns mentioned in the New Testament, John the Baptist, John Mark, John of Patmos, and John the son of Zebedee. Now, some of these distinctions are disputed, but I won't hold that against you. John the Baptist isn't, isn't known to have written anything, but John Mark, the youthful companion of Paul and Barnabas, who is, was to be the cause of the split between them, is believed to have been the author of the Gospel of Mark. John of Patmos is widely believed to be the author of the book of Revelation. However, scholars disagree about whether he is distinct from John, the son of Zebedee, the author of this gospel and the three epistles with his name. John, a fisherman, was called by Jesus to join his band of disciples along with his brother James. And both of them became part of Jesus' inner circle, together with Peter. And the three of them were present at all of the significant moments during Jesus' ministry. Some of which, like the transfiguration on the Mount of Olives, were to the exclusion of the others. Peter and John appear to have stayed close when Jesus was arrested, although when Peter had denied his discipleship and fled, John alone was found at the foot of the cross with the women. And it was here that he was given the commission to look after Mary, Jesus' mother, after his crucifixion. After the crucifixion, John stayed at Jerusalem until the persecutions began in earnest. His brother James was beheaded very early on, and it may, may have been that event that caused him to move away. And he moved to Ephesus in western Turkey, and there took leadership of the churches in that district. And it was there that he wrote the three epistles with his name, in the reverse order in which we have them in our Bibles. Don't ask me why. I wasn't counting. He wrote this gospel sometime later, having taken many years to muse over his memories and developing a coherent explanation of what he had seen and heard. The gospel was clearly written to people who were familiar with the other Gospels, as John frequently omits to mention the basic and obvious facts that the other Gospel writers mention. He has an encounter with John the Baptist, in which John announces himself as a baptizer and that he has seen the Holy Spirit land on Jesus, but completely omits to mention anything of the actual baptism. He mentions a long discourse that is clearly associated with the upper room and the garden. But at no time does he mention the breaking of bread or the sharing of wine. Instead, John mentions a foot washing 
that the other gospel writers either never noticed or failed to see the significance of. The Samaritans. We're generally familiar with the Samaritans. They were the group of people who were universally hated by the Jews. They lived in Palestine, but were generally spoken of favourably by the Gospel writers. But who were they, and where had they come from? In order to answer that question, we need to go back to the exile to Assyria. Now this took place in 740 BC, when the people of Samaria, the northern kingdom of ancient Israel, was overrun by the Assyrian, Tiglath-Pileser III. Just imagine having a name like that. It was followed by a similar exile when Nebuchadnezzar II took the people of Judah to Babylon in 740, sorry, in 597 BC. Contrary to the impression given by the biblical writers, not everybody was taken away. Only the intelligentsia were taken, all the, all the important people. And the main, in the main, the plebs, the ordinary folk, were left behind, shorn of their leadership and their ruling classes. And these two people merged together and formed a cultural unity, together with some of the foreigners who'd moved in the opposite direction by the Babylonians. Over the 70 years or so of the Judean exile, they intermarried, produced their own leadership, and established their own state with its own capital in Samaria, the erstwhile capital of the old northern kingdom. So that by the time that Nehemiah had returned to rebuild Jerusalem, their leader was a man called Sambalat, who was feeling threatened by this sudden return of Jews from Babylon. And the conflict between them is told in the book of Nehemiah. When the two communities met, they realised just how much of a cultural gap had emerged between them over the years. Those that remained were now referred to as Samaritans. And they found that they were unaware of the changes in thinking that the Jews had experienced during their exile. And the gulf between them was large. The Jews had embraced a much expanded law in a way unlike anything that they had done before the exile. And in their ignorance of the Jewish law, the Samaritans had intermarried with both the Jews, who had not been exiled in Babylon, as well as the foreigner exiles around them. And they were largely ignorant of the legalistic understanding of the law that the Jews had embraced while they were away. 
The gulf between them was to remain right up through to the days of Jesus. Indeed, it is still there in Israel today. The Jews are the direct descendants of the Jews of Babylon. And some of le- at least of the modern Palestinians are the direct descendants of the Samaritans. History tells us that the Samaritans converted to Islam in the 8th century AD. And what we are seeing today in the Middle East is in some ways a continuation of the civil war that was started between Jeroboam the son of Nebat in Samaria and Rehoboam the son of Solomon in the 9th century BC. Sychar, have to be careful how you say that because it comes out like sidecar, doesn't it? Sychar was a village in the region of Samaria almost exactly midway between Jerusalem and Nazareth. It is now known as Balata, if you're looking for it on a map. And it sits in the middle of the modern West Bank Territory. In, on, and the modern road system goes around the area, much like the Jews usually did in the first century AD. The old Samaritan capital was a mere seven miles to the northwest. And by passing through Samaria, Jesus and his disciples were saving themselves a considerable half a day's walk, even though it was unusual for a Jew to travel through Sychar. It was also unusual for a Jew to stop and talk to a woman in any circumstances, whether or not she was a Samaritan. And clearly, the disciples were shocked to discover this conversation was going on when they returned from their shopping expedition. The status of women in the first century was almost universally very poor. And the Jews tended to treat their women rather better than most of their contemporaries. Even then, one of the Jewish prayers in the Talmud went like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Needless to say, the women didn't pray that prayer. She was equally surprised that Jesus spoke to her. Many of the Jews of the day would have considered that any water that she had drawn from the well would have been deemed to be contaminated by her handling it. But this particular woman has been much maligned by the church over the centuries, and this is partly because of assumptions drawn from what the text says. Jesus asked for her to get her husband, a normal part of first century etiquette. And she answers that she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus then reveals that he already knows she has been married five times and that the man she lives with is not her husband. Of course, in our 20th century mindset, we assume that she has had five divorces and that she's living in sin and Jesus has caught her out. That's not what the text is saying. In ancient Middle Eastern society, It was not uncommon for young girls to be married off to older men. It's still true in many Muslim and Arab societies today. 
The side effect of this practice is that the women were frequently widowed at a relatively young age. And this was why looking after the widows was such a concern to Paul when he was writing to Timothy in the letter that we know as 1 Timothy in chapter 5, the passage you read earlier. And the lady at the well may have repeated this experience four times. By this point, she would be a rather mature widow and would likely be taken into the household of one of her children. So whilst the text doesn't necessarily imply an immoral relationship, it doesn't rule it out either. The temple in Jerusalem is generally familiar to us. We study it regularly. It was originally built by Solomon in the 10th century BC, demolished by Nebuchadnezzar in the 5th century, rebuilt by Ezra at the end of the 5th century, before being rebuilt to a much grander design by Herod the Great in about 29 BC. The other thing we need to remember is that Jerusalem was originally a Jebusite hill fort, which stood where the old city is now. That's the area on the map, surrounded in red. The Jebusites, you remember, were the nation that came last in the list of nations that God told the Israelites that they would need to conquer back in the days of Moses. And the name Jerusalem is believed by some to be a corruption of Jebusalem. In the 300 to 400 years between Joshua and King David, the temple had consisted of a large tent that had accompanied the people of Israel across the desert from Egypt. During those years, it was moved from time to time around a sequence of holy sites. And some of their names are likely to be familiar to you. Shechem, Shiloh, Bethel, Hebron, and Beersheba. These holy sites were straggled along a range of hilltops that ran north to south down Israel, like a backbone. And some of these places were as much as 4,000 feet above sea level, which makes them higher than Wales' highest mountain, Snowdon. You had to be a good climber to be a Jew. It was these worship sites that gave rise to the many psalms which talked about looking to the hills or going up to the mountains to see or meet God. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was the very first such hilltop site going back to the days of Joshua, in about 1300 BC. 
Now, Mount Gerizim is situated close to the modern city of Nablus, where they had some riots a week or two back in the modern West Bank Territory. And it's very close to Sychar. It may even have been visible from there. And Mount Gerizim was the place where the Samaritans believed Abraham had taken Isaac, intending to sacrifice him to Yahweh, at least until Yahweh intervened to stop him. This, of course, contrasted with the Jewish view that that event had taken place on what was to become the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This disagreement was just part of the arguments that lay between them. So Mount Gerizim then became the place where the Samaritans built a temple, a near replica of Solomon's in Jerusalem in the early 5th century B.C., Now, this temple was built very soon after Nebuchadnezzar had had the Jerusalem temple demolished. When Ezra rebuilt the temple of Jerusalem, it effectively created the rivalry that our heroine spoke of at the well in Sychar. The rivalry resurfaced in the 2nd century BC, when, following the Maccabean War, John Hyrcanus, possibly assisted by Simon the Just, the sources are not clear, had the Temple of Gerizim destroyed. And from that point on, the Samaritans continued to use the mount as a worship centre until 484 AD, when Zeno, you'll never have heard of him before, the emperor of Byzantium, the direct successor to the Roman Empire, had a Christian church built on the site after a riot. Today, there is a museum on Gerizim telling the story of the the Samaritan people. It's interesting how Jesus turns the conversation from a discussion about the competing merits of the two temples to a discussion about what worship is all about. And in the modern era, we can easily slide into a mindset where worship is is what pleases us rather than God. If we follow that approach, we would likely as not find that there are as many different understandings of worship as there are people in the room. Some of you might be tempted to think that it is only in the modern era that we've really learned how to worship. But that, of course, is absurd. Equally, we can easily imagine that good worship depends on certain elements. The music must be good. Except that we won't agree as to what good music is. Freedom to express oneself must be present. Except that we all want to express ourselves in different and often conflicting ways. For some of us, worship must be orderly. Except that that often stifles innovation. And then, in every age, it is invariably true that a group of people arise who take control of worship. And over time, that group will begin to exercise power 
to the detriment of everybody else. And then a conflict ensues. This is often fought out in business meetings, but occasionally it can emerge into the worship itself. I can recall a time conducting worship in a church near the Welsh border. I won't tell you which one. Back in the days of the hymn sandwich, do you remember those? Before the service, I had been told that they always sang the Lord's Prayer. However, I forgot to note down this vital bit of information. And when I got to the place in the service, it slipped my mind. And I began to recite it. So far, so good. When the organist noticed this, he immediately began to play the music of the sung version. And over the next few minutes, most of the congregation spent an uncomfortable time sliding from the reciting to the singing. But the spirit of worship was lost. When Jesus said that those that worship God must worship him as he really is, or as some translations put it, in spirit and truth. He was affirming the way we need to come to God. And it's not about performing a ritual, or even refusing to do so. Baptists frequently look with disdain upon others who seem incapable of doing anything without reference to a service book. However, if you compare successive weeks at most Baptist churches, you will see that the service book exists inside somebody's head and is no less real for all of that. You see, your worship isn't dependent upon the worship group being good or, and I didn't pay the children, the parents of the children to make them noisy today, nor is it dependent upon the children staying quiet. Nor is it dependent on the preacher being anointed. Nor is it dependent on the songs being your favourites. It is dependent on your heart being in tune with God's heart. And it is that quite mystical state that God desires to share in. In the patriarchal period of Israel's history, that is, in the time of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, it was the mystical communion with Yahweh in the cloud that was at the heart of the people's worship. But from the Exodus onwards, they tried to create concrete representations of Yahweh. The people of Israel had not long since crossed the Red Sea. They reached Sinai. And Moses had left them to commune with God up the mountain. And while he was away, the people donated their gold to Aaron. And from it he created a representation of God in the form of a golden calf. They probably had a lot of theological justifications of why it was a calf. But needless to say, this met with both Moses and Yahweh's displeasure. And the people learned a valuable lesson about representing God in an effigy. After the people had settled in Israel, they allowed the Ark of the Covenant 
to be that representation of God. And when that happened, that too was taken from them on more than one occasion. Then they built a fine temple at the time of Solomon. And that too started to get in the way of the mystical relationship with God. And eventually that too was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken into exile in Babylon. And they began to see the Torah, our Old Testament, as representing God. But that too started to get in the way of the mystical relationship. And then Jesus came to explain that for all their value, and they do have value, for all their value, the mystical relationship with God is not dependent upon temples, priests, law codes, rituals, histories, songs, or theologies. It is dependent on a mystical personal relationship with God which is much more, who is much more loving than you or I can ever imagine. I'll repeat that. It is dependent on a mystical, personal relationship with God who is much more loving than you or I can ever imagine. In order for us to be able to understand this, God had to come in a body. Jesus. He had to die on a cross to show God's heart. And then he had to rise from the dead to show his divine power over death. And he then ascended to heaven in order to restore that mystical relationship by the Holy Spirit. Since then, we have repeatedly built churches and cathedrals and monasteries and statues and crucifixes that have got in the way of the relationship, at least until later generations have thought better of them. And we're still constantly tempted to exalt Bibles and church buildings, especially the old ones, preachers and even conferences until they threaten our mystical relationship with God. The Reverend John Clifford was a 19th century Baptist minister and politician. He played a prominent part in the Baptist Union between his ordination in 1858 and his death in 1923. He happened to die, because that's the point of this story, he happened to die during a Baptist Union council meeting. I'm not sure what that says about the council meeting. But it was in what was then the new Baptist Union headquarters in Southampton Row in London. And so the council agreed to put a plaque on the chair that he happened to be occupying at the time. And the plaque read... And I hasten to add that the wording is only approximate because I only ever saw the plaque once and I never thought to photograph it at the time. In this chair, the Reverend Dr. John Clifford, M.A., B.S.C., 
was seated when he died during the Baptist Union Council meeting on the 20th of November, 1923. Needless to say, there was a marked reluctance of others to use that particular chair. I think they were all a little bit afraid that they might follow him. And after some time, the council took the brave decision to remove the plaque from the chair and attach it to the wall nearby. And there it remained, at least until the headquarters was moved to Didcot in 1986. Sorry, 89. It becomes oh so easy to confuse in our minds our devotion to God with our nostalgia for the past. It's people, it's buildings, and even the traditions that we form to help us remember the good times of the past. We are called to worship a God who built us as we are. He built this world for us to inhabit. And he went on to arrange our affairs so that we could have a deeply intimate relationship with him. And he equipped us with all that we need to face everything that the world could possibly throw at us. And so we worship him as he really is, in spirit and in truth. The lady at Sychar was completely overwhelmed by this conversation with Jesus. So much so that she went back to her own people in Sychar and asked them to come and meet this Jew who had stopped to speak to her on his journey through the village. And they came, and the conversation went on for two whole days. Just imagine that. When we have a genuine encounter with Jesus, we don't need to be told to pray. We don't need to be told to evangelize. We don't need to be told to love the needy. Or to work for peace. We won't be able to stop ourselves.